Presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. While the state's coronavirus numbers continue to rise exponentially, the governor and state board of education have transferred most COVID-19 decision-making to local government officials. But are they well-equipped to respond to this crisis? I'm Melissa Davlin. Idaho Reports starts now. Hello and welcome to Idaho Reports. This week, James Dawson of Boise State Public Radio joins us to discuss how different local public health districts are responding to the COVID-19 public health crisis. Then Clark Corbin of Idaho Education News explains the state's new reopening guidelines for schools and the uncertainty surrounding that framework. But first, Idaho's coronavirus cases continue to rise at one of the fastest rates in the nation. Since our last program two weeks ago, the number of known COVID-19 cases in Idaho has doubled from about 5,000 to 10,000, and hospitalizations continue to rise as well. We have all of those numbers with regional context and additional reporting online. Follow Idaho Reports on Facebook and Twitter, and make sure you catch our nightly coronavirus updates before and after PBS NewsHour. Despite repeatedly breaking single-day records for new cases in the last two weeks and not meeting the criteria to advance past stage four of reopening Idaho, Governor Little said Thursday that the state will continue to leave coronavirus-related decision-making like mask mandates and business closures up to local government agencies such as cities and public health districts. He also said that he expects students to return to school for in-person instruction for the upcoming fall semester. I support the mayors and local public health officials across the state who are making tough decisions to protect citizens and preserve health care capacity. We want our students back in school at the end of the summer. We want our economy to rebound as quickly as possible. Our personal actions are the single most important thing we can do to make this happen. Over the past two weeks, Idaho did not meet the criteria to advance past our final stage of the Idaho Rebounds Plan. We will remain in stage four for at least another two weeks. While the governor has transferred much of the COVID-19 response to local public health districts, those districts still aren't receiving the same amount of state funding as they were before the 2008 recession and subsequent statewide budget cuts. Idaho Reports producer Devin Downey looked into state appropriations for Idaho's seven public health districts for the past 14 years and found they received 7% less funding from the legislature this fiscal year than they did in 2006. Meanwhile, Idaho's population has grown by about 300,000 people. On Friday, I spoke to James Dawson of Boise State Public Radio about how these local government entities are responding to this public health crisis and how politics plays in to some of those discussions. 
Thanks so much for joining us today. You've been covering Central District Health's response to the pandemic here in Southwest Idaho. Um, and one of the things that I've noticed, and I know that you've talked about, is boards of health aren't run by public health professionals. Uh, who makes up these governing boards for these seven public health districts? Yeah, so we're talking about kind of a mix of, um, you know, in some cases, there are state lawmakers on there, uh, a lot of county commissioners, since these different public health districts are uh, made up of, you know, a handful of different counties across the state, um, varying in size and, and population. So um, some of them have mixtures, I, I believe, there's some requirement to have at least one uh, health professional, and I believe that has to be an MD on there. Um, but other than that, uh, it's kind of up to uh, each individual district as to who they who they have in there. Now, and usually they don't have to worry about things like pandemic response. Normally, these boards are doing things like looking at budgets for senior fit and fall proof classes. This is way outside of what the norm is. Right. Or like anti-smoking campaigns or, um, for instance, if there's some kind of rabies outbreak in, in the local bat population, you know, they put out releases on that. Uh, or sometimes uh, they'll also partner with other agencies on um, deadly algae bloom. Um, uh, outbreaks in the summer, right? And so th those are more in their wheelhouse. Uh, they usually don't have to deal with a global pandemic on their hands, right? And so, you know, you're just seeing like the fallout, I suppose, of what that actually means now that we're in one. So as you've listened to Central District Health discuss these um, potential responses to the pandemic here in Ada County and uh, in, in this, what is it, four-county region, how, what have they been weighing while they make these decisions? Well, I, and Central District Health is different from a lot of uh, the different public health districts across the state where um, there are more medical professionals on on their board than most. And so I think the discussion has generally been more around um, scientific facts uh, and what is used to combat the virus. Obviously, Ada County has the um, largest outbreak in the state and has for the last several weeks. So um, they've been pretty uh, disturbed by the fact that it's growing such, at such exponential speed here. Um, and so, th you know, they're discussing a potential mandatory mask order that they're going to take up next week for Ada County and possibly Valley County as well, um, just because they don't want, um, I suppose, uh, the health systems to be overrun since Valley County, people would likely come down from McCall and Cascade into the Treasure Valley area um, for hospitalization if it were to get that serious. Um, and and that's really what they've been discussing the past couple of weeks, aside from, you know, rolling back into stage three, a modified stage three of the governor's reopening plan, which um, they also closed bars and nightclubs, but not movie theaters. Yeah, let's talk about that a little bit, because these communities in Treasure Valley, in Magic Valley, in eastern Idaho are so inextricably linked to each other. And so while the governor has transferred a lot of this decision making to local governing authorities, one one authority can make a decision, but it's not going to matter as much if the community next door isn't making the same isn't taking the same precautions. 
Yeah, and that's exactly it. I mean, it, and and I think like a good example of that would certainly be Ada County and Canyon County. They're in two separate public health districts, uh, with Canyon being in Southwest. Um, and they met this week too, saying that well. It's kind of alarming. I believe the director <laughs> said those words exactly. You know, this is kind of alarming, but I think we're managing it okay, even though Canyon County has the second largest amount of cases uh, week after week after week for the past several weeks uh, compared to Ada County. But people commute back and forth um, to, to live, work, play, shop, uh, you know, whether they live in Nampa or Caldwell and come to Boise or Meridian or Eagle. Well, and I've been really interested by that, too, because Canyon County and Ada County are both growing at the same percentage rate for new cases. And there there are absolutely no restrictions right now in Canyon County. And listening to that, um, the Southwest Public Health District's meeting, looking at the reporting that came out of that, there was a very different tone among the the Board of Health members as they were questioning the doctor and, and trying to figure out what, if any, measures they should take than what we saw in Ada County. Yeah, they only have one uh, actual medical professional on that board with several um, different elected members, uh, all county commissioners pretty much over there. Um, one being Adams County Commissioner Vicki Purdy, um, who said, quote, what's the big deal about this virus? We know who it affects the most. Um, and then board members also question basic scientific facts like whether asymptomatic people can spread the virus, which to be clear, they can. Um, and, and so there's almost a politization, politicalization, um, if I can actually say that word correctly, politicalization of, uh, of this virus that, that we've seen across the country. It's nothing new. It's, it's not strictly limited to Idaho or, or its counties, but um, we're seeing how that kind of mindset can affect a public health crisis um, in which you know, epidemiologists say that should be the overarching priority as opposed to um, political goals and agendas. Now, I want to talk a little bit about that politicalization of these decisions. Uh, as the governor last month or in late May transferred all of this authority to these local governing boards. And, you know, during that discussion, during that announcement, he said that it, it makes sense to have local control because the situation in Clearwater County isn't gonna be the same as the situation in Ada County. And that makes sense, but how much of that is local control and how much of that is passing the buck and not being responsible for some of these really consequential decisions. Well, he was under tremendous pressure too from from Republican legislators, people within his own party. I mean, you had uh, State Representative Megan Blanksma, who we should say is vice chair of the Central District Health Board and has voted against both tracking outbreaks uh, linked to bars in Ada County, specifically Boise, um, as well as uh, restrictions uh, in that county. Um, she, you know, she's, she's always been trumpeting, like, let's, let's transfer control to the local public health districts. And most notably, you had a, a letter, a pretty long letter too, from House Speaker Scott Bedke saying the same thing and that he couldn't guarantee that, uh, there wouldn't be political consequences, um, on your executive authority and power, uh, when the legislature resumed in 2021. And so... <laughs> You know, I, I think he took a huge hit to his political capital by ordering the lockdown in the first place, even though we saw polling from 
um, the Idaho Association of Industry and Commerce showing overwhelmingly Idahoans supported that and his response to the coronavirus, I believe back in April or May. And uh, I don't know, it's, it's difficult, I think, to be in that position anyway, um, but to have people threatening your power and your legislative priorities for the next two years before you're up for election, um, I think is a lot to take into. Well, and the uh, they're already moving on potential legislative action, forming different working groups to take a look at Idaho statute and how it relates to pandemic response. And so regardless of what the governor has been doing, transferring that local control, the, the lawmakers are already looking at ways to, you could say, curb that authority or have more input, regardless of how you look at it, though. That's what's happening. It, exactly. And I think that, you know, you talk to some critics of Governor Little's latest response to kind of shift this power over to uh, the local public health districts. And, and they're saying, look, man, you know, this would have happened anyway, even if you ha- had not transferred that authority. So why didn't you just take your shot when you could have? Um, some people say maybe it's, it's an attempt to save face with some voters who maybe don't want, a, a, you know, a more far right candidate to primary him in two years. Um, who knows what could have or would have happened or whether any of these actions would have prevented it anyway, right? Absolutely. Well, and one thing that struck me from the letters that form these working groups is leadership made sure not to directly criticize Little. It wasn't like those early letters where they were directly calling him out and threatening that authority. They were just saying, hey, it's it's time to take a look at this. We didn't know that there were these issues before. And right. I thought that a striking change in tone. Yeah, yeah, and not, and not to mention they also want the power, their own power, to call themselves back into session. Uh, by the way, so they're not just limited by that three-ish month period at the beginning of the year. You know, one last thing I wanted to ask you about uh, during Thursday's press conference with the governor, you asked Governor Little if all of the economic and personal sacrifices that people had made during the first couple months of the pandemic were all for naught now that we have exponential growth of the virus um, without real any real measures from the state to curb that. Um, the, the governor said that it could have been worse. Um, and I wanted to ask what you're hearing from people about that response and whether they agree with the governor. Yeah, I mean, he he deflected that question pretty well. I mean, he said, uh, you know, it was better than doing nothing um, and that, you know, pretty much no state in the country took a took a no action response. But that that's not what the question is about. I mean, you had 1.79 million people in Idaho stay home for a month as much as possible. You had business owners try to accommodate um, customers as as well as they can and as safely as they could, you know, over the past several months. Um, business is still down. We, we're still seeing sales tax revenue, you know, far below what it was. It's going to take a huge hit in the tune of uh, 300 some million dollars is the, is the current forecasted projection. Um, and, and we're seeing similar things come across uh, internationally as well with uh, the Sweden model, which is what a lot of kind of laissez-faire politicians point to as, well, they didn't shut down their economy. They didn't really impose these restrictions, but it's had significantly higher death tolls um, than its neighbors, uh, even per capita on a per capita basis. But it's also taking a hit in its uh, in its economic performance too. GDP is going to be down next year, I believe, by four point something percent. So it, it's like they... Uh, had many more residents die 
um, and citizens die in that country seemingly for no economic gain whatsoever. Um, and so in Idaho, we're still feeling that economic pain, and I think we will for a long time to come. James Dawson, Boise State Public Radio, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Melissa. County commissioners and local health district board members aren't the only local officials with big decisions on their plates. Clark Corbin of Idaho Education News joined us Friday to discuss how local school districts must now come up with plans for students and educators to safely return to school. Clark, thanks so much for joining us. On Thursday, the governor said a couple times that he expects schools to reopen for the fall semester. That's different than an order, but let's talk about that tone a little bit. Yeah, I think that, you know, this is one of the big stories of the summer of, and certainly this week for us, but uh, we saw the State Board of Education and the governor present uh, this 32-page document, our school reopening plans, and it's just plans and guidelines. You know, the state's been very clear that local school boards and local charter schools will make their own decisions about reopening in the fall. What this is, is giving them guidance to help make those decisions. And so from that regard, it's not a mandate, it's not a requirement, but when it comes to the tone, it's not neutral. It's exactly what you said, Melissa, that coming from the highest levels of state government, uh, from the governor um, and from the State Board of Education and coming from the highest levels of the federal government with President Trump, the message is, we are expecting our schools to reopen safely for in-person instruction at the end of the summer. And as Idahoans know, that's about five weeks away for one of the state's largest school district. Um, so this is happening very, very quickly. Um, the plan came together very quickly. It was in draft form early in the week. Uh, it was just adopted by the state board. As you said on Thursday, the governor presented it. There's a lot in this plan, there's also a lot that's not in this plan, uh, and we can get into, uh, you know, whichever way you want to go on, on that, Melissa. Yeah, let's let's walk through the basics of that plan. This is something that you have been following pretty closely. Yeah, it's come together over the last four weeks. There was this working group appointed by the governor and the state board um, that developed it uh, very quickly. Uh, they originally had a self-imposed June 30th deadline, which they missed, um, but the nuts and bolts of the plan are, it, it kind of creates these three different categories for schools based on the level of transmission with this coronavirus and the risk to the community. And it's everything from, so there's three categories, everything from category one, um, which is no community transmission, that's pretty cut and dry. Traditional learning model, school buildings open for instruction. Uh, and then there's two other categories. Category two is like minimal to moderate, uh, spread transmission of the virus. And at that point, schools would have a suite of options. They could have a traditional opening. Uh, it looks like the highlighted guidance is for a hybrid blended model. And, and that may be a new term for folks who aren't in education, but it doesn't need to confuse people. If you hear about a hybrid blended model, I think what they're really talking about is limited in-person use of the school buildings, maybe by smaller groups or in staggered groups, coupled with an online or a remote learning uh, program. And so that's where the term hybrid uh, or blended model comes in. And then you have category three, uh, which is substantial community transmission. And the recommendation there would be for full distance remote learning, extended closures of the school buildings. And just real quickly before I, I let you weigh in, uh, we did talk with Dr. Christine Hahn, the state epidemiologist on Thursday. 
And she pointed out that the guidance is brand new. So if you're wondering, you know, where does my child's school fit? Uh, that, those decisions have not made, been made yet on where the local schools will enter um, a given category. That's going to be a decision that we now know will actually be up to local public health officials. Well, and that could change between now and mid-August when a lot of these schools are going to be coming back. That's one of the things that, that kept you know, standing out to me as a parent. What we know now, what we think now might be different in five weeks. Yeah, and, and yeah, I think that that's exactly right, uh, that there's a lot of unknowns. There's some things that this reopening plan doesn't address. And so uh, some of the committee members, the State Board of Education President, Debbie Critchfield, talked about how this is a living document. You know, they might add uh, to the reopening plan. They might get that committee back together in a few weeks. Uh, they might make some additions. We might learn more uh, about it. But this reopening plan, it doesn't address civil liability, which is a big issue for our school administrators. Uh, because they're worried that insurance carriers won't cover costs if someone gets sick with the COVID-19, contracts it at school, and sues. It also doesn't address sports, uh, which public health officials have said is a big concern. So there's a lot in there that's not addressed. There's a lot in there certainly that is addressed during the 32 pages, but I had kind of an interesting moment during the governor's press conference on Thursday where I was trying to ask Governor Little, based on where we stand right now in Ada County, coming on the heels of a record number of new cases, would it be safe to send kids back to school this Monday coming up? Would it be safe to send kids back to school and staff members, you know, recognizing there may be older staff members or staff members with higher risk profiles? And I don't think the governor liked the question very well. He said, Clark, we could get into hypotheticals all day long, but school doesn't start Monday. We have the time. And at the end of the day, I don't want the message to be that we're not opening. That's what the governor said. But to me, I was just trying to find out a baseline. How many cases are too many? Where do we stand right now? You know, the here and now to me is concrete. You know, could we open safely now? Would you still encourage them to open safely now? To me, what seems like a hypothetical, and I don't mean any disrespect, but is mid-August. That's what seems like a hypothetical. You know, and this comes as you pointed out, some of these school districts have already started rolling out these plans uh, locally. Um, West Ada and Boise have released preliminary plans. I know that Boise is calling for full day, five day a week in-person instruction. Um, so already in a community that has moderate spread right now, that doesn't line up with the suggestion of a hybrid model. Right. Uh, and so that's one of the things that I was trying to to get at and trying to get some clarity on. And so, I, but you're absolutely right. Local school districts have released their plans. Uh, Boise and West Ada, the two largest districts, have their plans out. Over in Eastern Idaho, some smaller to mid-sized district, uh, Madison released their plan. They wanna go ahead with in-person instruction in the fall. The West Side School District wants to go ahead with in-person instruction in the fall. And their superintendent, Spencer Barzi, was involved with some of these reopening committee meetings. But you're absolutely right that um, you know, if you're a parent wondering what's happening, the answer is to talk to your local school or your local school board or superintendent. But things could absolutely change between now and mid-August. Uh, but, you know, the timing was horrible to announce these reopening plans. And I know you have to get it out in advance to give people an opportunity to plan uh, and make decisions. But the timing was horrible. Um, you know, seeing 400 new cases a day across the state you know, like I said, coming on the heels of a single day record, which I think had been reset three times in the previous week. Um, and we've talked about 
school administrators and parents have a desire to go back to, for a traditional opening in the fall. We've seen survey data that shows that. I've heard from teachers who miss their children and, and, and wanna be back with their students in the fall. Uh, but I'm also hearing some concerns out in the field now. And I think, Melissa, you've heard some of those too. And as a parent, making these decisions for your family, it's a very real decision and you can relate. But I am hearing some concern and some uncertainty. Um, but it certainly is a mix. It's not one thing or the other. People aren't speaking with one voice. A lot of people want to go back for a traditional opening. A lot of people see a lot of benefits to having children in school. A lot of people had a lot of concerns with the remote learning that took place in the spring. Uh, but now as the cases spike, we're seeing concern about, you know, do I send my kids back? What would that be like? What are the plans like? How are we going to deal with this? And so and the way I'm treating it is it's a big story for me for the rest of the year. Well, and certainly not everybody has the privilege of being able to stay home with their children if physical in-person learning isn't a possibility in their district. But at the same time, I'm seeing a lot of questions that don't seem to have answers in the state plan or even in the district plans. Like, how much responsibility is on the teachers to, say, enforce masks or hand washing or what happens if a student shows up and has a slight cough but doesn't have a fever? How much falls on these teachers who are already you know underpaid compared to their colleagues in other states who already have a lot of responsibilities and are already dealing with changing dynamics yeah um there's a lot of questions uh, masks are in the plan face coverings are in the plan but it talks about you know depending on what category it is there's a different response or recommendation but it talks about you know recommended but not required and it, once you get into category two it talks about you know, making masks available for your staff members and for, you know, anybody who doesn't have a mask but would like one. But Debbie Critchfield, the State Board of Education president, said that it's her understanding that schools would be required to comply with any of these local masks orders that we see in communities. You know, just thinking of Boise, McCall, uh, some of the communities that have had mask orders come out in the last couple of weeks. She thinks that schools would be obligated to adhere to that but yeah who enforces it um and also you know i've heard some talk about you know is it going to be the parents responsibility to screen their children every morning before they send them to do a temperature check and so a lot of these decisions are going to be you know individual responsibility and made at the local level and there's just a lot that we still don't know only five weeks out from the first day of school a lot we don't know and this comes as schools, along with every other state agency, uh, are being ordered to cut their budgets by 5%. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, you know, the new fiscal year just started, what, 10 days ago? Um, the new budget year for the state of Idaho. And, you know, people are expecting and bracing for the 5% cuts on top of the previous 1% holdbacks and everything else that we've been through. Um, but it was interesting. Uh, you know, I don't know if you've been following the Reclaim Idaho uh, court case. There was a circuit court ruling on Thursday siding with Reclaim Idaho saying that they can go ahead next week with their signature gathering effort. Uh, those folks are trying to raise uh, corporate and income taxes uh, to raise up to $170 million for public schools. That's the group that was behind the successful Medicaid expansion effort a couple of years back. Uh, I think they have 48 days to get back in the field and try to get the signatures to get that on the November ballot. But meanwhile, the state is going to appeal that to the Supreme Court, and they're trying to appeal the First Amendment case too. But it does look like Reclaim Idaho is geared up 
and it's going to start resuming its signature gathering drive next week. As always, so much to talk about in education, and I'm sure we'll have you back on. Clark Corbin, Idaho Education News, thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for watching. For updates throughout the week, make sure you're following Idaho Reports on Facebook and Twitter, where we bring you updated numbers and analysis throughout the week. And just a reminder, you can also listen to all of our programs and web extras in podcast form. Search for Idaho Reports on your favorite podcast platform, including Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Podcasts, and Apple Podcasts. See you next time. Stay safe, Idaho. presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.